0: So good to have you joining us here this morning, Uh, if in fact you're listening here this morning. It's good to have you listening whenever you're listening, but there's a specialness to having a shared moment together, a spiritual connectedness. So glad that you're all here uh, whenever you're here. Uh, My name's Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here, and uh, I probably should explain something to you before I get going. Uh, Why do I have these funky gloves on? I'm not trying to be cool or anything like that. Um... Uh, yeah, it's just Part of my weirdness, you know, I, I wear shorts. I'm the only person up here with short sleeves because I get hot really fast, but my hands don't. My hands stay cold. I got that—I think it's that—what are they called? Reynolds or Reynolds or something like that. Where they turn kind of purple. So anyways, that's why I have gloves on, in case you're wondering. Uh, I'm entitling this message from uh, from Exile to Promised Land, and it just occurred to me on the way over here— I have an analogy uh, that I—it I, I, just occurred to me that in, in a sense, I mean, exile, you can be exiled from a land, banished from a land, but you also can be exiled just from a condition or a circumstance. Like, we have been for the last year or so exiled from normal. <laughs> uh, we've been banished from normal. The way life's supposed to go is not the way life is going. Now, we're starting to get back there a little inch by inch and head in the right direction, and the numbers are going down. Uh, see what happens, uh, whether our deliverance is nigh or whether we're going to have another wave of this with these variants coming on. We're we're in a major race right now. Will our vaccinations beat out these, these, the UK and the African variants that are coming around? We'll see. It's a tight race. Uh, But we're not out of the woods yet. So hang in there. We're still in Excel, but our deliverance is coming. So this message is going to be, in case you haven't noticed, uh, it'll be a little bit about exile and things like that. But I want to start with this. Here's a a sort of a paradox we should think about. You know, up until uh, the 16th century or so, uh, people didn't own their own Bibles. Uh, it, uh, the Bibles had to be copied by hand and, that, and they had to be copied by experts And so uh, Bibles were extremely expensive Any kind of book was really ex- extremely expensive But most people didn't have uh, that Plus the literacy rate in the West was 5-10% to 10% throughout most of our history So most people couldn't have read the Bible Even if they would have had it They didn't own the Bibles uh, b- b- Churches own Bibles There's like a Bible for every church But not a Bible for every home no. Things have really changed uh, Today cr- yeah. most of us Christians own Certainly on one Bible, and a lot of us on a number of Bibles. I counted, in my office I have 22 Bibles that I could—I I think I have others that I just couldn't find. But uh, 22 others, and that's not counting my phone, which has about another 40 versions of it. So, so we have all the Bibles you could ever want. And on top of that, you can—by just downloading certain programs, you can find out— you, I mean, you could just worm your way into the Bible, parse every verb, and find out the background, historical text— Aids, teaching aids are all over the place. So our accessibility to the Bible is greater than it's ever been. And our accessibility to understanding the Bible is greater than it's ever been. So why is it that Bible reading is lower right now than it's ever been since about the 17th century? Uh, In the last four decades in particular, Bible reading among Christians has just been going down, 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 down. And so the illiteracy rate, Bible illiteracy rate has been going up, 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 up. Which means that probably, uh, I think I saw this one study that, that, that uh, said that only one out of three Christians uh, reads their Bible on a regular basis for devotional purposes. It means two out of three are not regularly reading the Bible for devotional purposes. Now, if you come from a certain background where the Bible was weaponized against you, and some of us have come from that background, or if you just don't know me well and and are used to preachers kind of haranguing on you, you might be preparing yourself, buffering yourself, because you're about to receive a, a shame slime from the pastor. Here comes a slime ball. Sinner friend, when was the last time you sat down with the Word of God and really got into the Word of God? When was the last time you let the Spirit just soak you and bathe you in the Word? How long has it been, friend? <laughs> I was told, was that northern enough? Because I've told her whenever I, I, I do sarcastic preaching, I, go, I have a southern voice. Uh, and, and that's not fair to southerners. I don't mean to be prejudiced against— It's just that all the preachers that I have in mind always have this, that, that, the, the weird gall. It has this kind of weird accent. So anyways, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to slime you. Because if I, if I slimed you, I'd have to slime me. So here's a little confession. Um, I have, in the last, I'd say, five or six years or so, not been a regular Bible reader. Now, take that little clip and send it out into Internet Town and see what happens. See, we have right here. Boy, does not read the Bible. No wonder his theology is so screwed up. But here's the thing. I study the Bible a lot. I I, I get into it. I I love to, you know, just find out stuff about it, background, whatever, because I I teach the Bible. So I, I study it a lot. I've got portions of the New Testament memorized. I, I've, I've got a lot of verses in my head. I know a lot about the Bible. But see, here's the thing. Um, I think I studied so much, I just got out of the habit of just reading it. And part of the reason I got out of the habit of reading it is because I know the stories already. It's like, okay, I know, I know that story. But see, that's missing the point. We're not to be just reading the Bible to get information. Yeah, you study the Bible to get information, but there's a, there needs to be a place in our life where we read the Bible and just let God talk to us, like Emily was just saying, let God talk to us uh, through, this, through this medium. And I, I bring my Bible up here, even though the verses are written down, because I'm always now reminding myself that the Bible is not a phone app. And it's really an important distinction, because if you, if you think, if we start to think of the Bible as a phone app, well, that goes into this whole, you just read it for information things. Uh, no, it's—this it's, uh, is the, the inspired story of God, and it's the means by which God wants to commune with us. There's a world of difference between studying the Bible and, and just reading it devotionally, letting God talk to you through it. Um, and so I, 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 I have gotten convicted about this. Because um, I'm missing something if I'm not just reading the Bible— I, not reading it to prepare for a sermon or prepare for a lesson or find out some interesting fact, but just to read it to hear from God— It's to be our nourishment. It's to be—we're supposed to be ingesting this, and um, that takes time. It takes saturation. Studying the Bible is really good. You see, when you you study the Bible, you're in control. I I ask the questions. I interrogate the Bible. I, I come with my agenda, and I pose it on the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? Talk to me in in this venue here. But see, when we read the Bible devotionally or or when we hear the Bible just for devotional purposes to communion with God, we're giving ourselves a chance to enter into the story, to identify with the story. We're to be the people that are carrying on this story. This is a story that includes our history. Um, uh, we, We give ourselves time to be impacted. Let the Holy Spirit encourage us, convict us, grow us, mature us, whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do with us. It's not just about info. And ultimately, as we've been seeing here the last couple of weeks, ultimately, the purpose for for ingesting Scripture devotionally is to—it points us to Jesus Christ. It it, it, it deepens our relationship, which deepens our transformation out of this relationship. Uh, A really good book on this, by the way, is uh, by Eugene Peterson, and it's called Eat This Book. And it's a metaphor he uses. It comes out of the book of Revelation, where John's told to eat this scroll. And uh, um, but it 's a metaphor for how, how we're to let the Bible sort of become part of us, just saturate, take it in, read it meditatively and prayerfully. It's very different than just studying it to get some facts. I somewhere along the lower road forgot about reading it because I was too busy studying it. And guess, I, I said it's, it's, it's convicted me. I know no, if this is to be the food that you know Jesus said, don't, people don 't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. we're supposed to live by this. Don't just eat bread, eat the word, eat the story, ingest it. And I've realized that if that's true, then I I have got to be somewhat malnourished right now. There's a dimension of my spirituality that is less than it could be because I haven't been sitting regularly under the word and just letting God talk to me in, in the word. For me to be all I can be, I need to be a person who communes with God through the word. And for us as a congregation, Woodland Hills, for us to be all that we can be, we need to be a congregation of people that are regularly feeding on, feasting on, ingesting, digesting the word of God, the inspired story of God. I now realize that um, I've been remiss on this and I want to apologize for this. I have not emphasized this the way I should have been. Certainly not in the last five, uh, ten years. And, and I, I, all I can do is I'll say I, I'll do better at that because the buck stops here. And, um, and so I, I've been shortchanging us by not encouraging us more regularly to be studying the Word, reading the Word, sitting under the Word. I want to start doing that now, I'm turning a new corner here. This whole series has been— you know, just the last five weeks, so foundational. It, 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 we didn't plan it. It just it turns out that these verses that we've been looking at, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, uh, so foundational stuff. And here we're coming upon a foundational thing, a truly foundational thing that, that we have been largely missing, and that is on me. Um, the ultimate goal of consuming Scripture is to point us to Jesus Christ. Another book on this uh, that is really good uh, is by Megan Good. Uh, She has a book entitled The Bible Unwrapped. I would really recommend that to get a a good overview of of, of the whole Bible and and, and as a means of seeing how the Bible points to Jesus. She says in that book that the Bible is like a window. And windows are meant to be looked through, not at. Okay, so the Bible is not an end in and of itself. Some people kind of get into Bible idolatry by making the Bible an end in and of itself. No, it's a window through which we're to look and see the life of Scripture, who is Jesus Christ. And deepen that relationship with Jesus Christ, clarify a vision of Jesus Christ, expand our understanding of Jesus Christ, fall more in love with Jesus Christ, and be more transformed by Jesus Christ. That's the function of Scripture. And that happens when we sit and commune with it. Uh, We've we've seen here the last couple of weeks that, that all Scripture, the New Testament itself tells us, and Jesus himself tells us, that all Scripture is supposed to point to him. So in Matthew 5, and I don't want to read those verses again because I'm really packing a lot in here, and uh, we should have those verses memorized by now because this is the fifth, fifth week we've been preaching on them. <laughs> uh, but Matthew 5, this is, this is where Jesus says that don't think that I've come to abolish the law. No, I've come to fulfill the law. Everything must be fulfilled, and it's fulfilled in me. That's why we said last week that either, this, either Jesus is crazy or he's telling the truth, and I'm betting everything on him telling the truth. It's all about him. He's the subject matter of Scripture. And John 5, we looked at that last week, verses 39 through 45. And that's where Jesus says uh, to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you guys, are, you, study the, you study the Bible a lot. That's good. You study it. But yet you don't, you, you don't find life in it because you won't come to me. He is the life of Scripture. This is where God is sharing his life with us. So if you read the Bible in a way that doesn't lead to life, it doesn't point to Jesus and doesn't deepen that relationship, you're reading the Bible wrongly uh, in, 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 a, in a futile, lifeless kind of way. So today I want to ask two questions. A long question and a short question. Uh, how does our knowledge that this is, this is the God-breathed story um, of God, the inspired story of God, and it's all intended to point us to Jesus, how does that ch- change how we interpret the Bible when we read it devotionally? hear God's voice. And I'll spend most of the message talking about that. But then the second question is sort of the big picture question, and I can answer that in about five minutes. But it's like, how does Jesus actually then complete the storyline of the Bible? How is it all fulfilled in him? So those are the two questions we're going to be looking at. I should warn you, Mary here made me promise to warn you that she thinks uh, that this is one of my geeky messages. more on the geeky side, so you need to warn people. Have your thinking caps on. I don't think it's that geeky. Paul didn't think it was geeky, but Mary runs the show. So if Mary says it's geeky, it's geeky. So I'm going to—I try to de-geekify it. Is that—de-geekify? <laughs> I, I de-geekify it uh, a little bit. Uh, but uh, so that guy might love this. Others, maybe not so much. But stay tuned. Keep your thinking caps on. Okay. So rather than read Matthew 5 again and John 5 again, I, I want to read two other verses that deal with the whole Bible pointing to Jesus and draw some points out of that. The first one is 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to be reading from the message paraphrase of the Bible, which is I, I recommend the message paraphrase for devotional reading because your, your, it, it reads most in common language, the kind of language you usually use. It's not a literal translation, so I wouldn't go to it to settle doctrinal disputes or whatever. But as a—Eugene uh, Peterson, he, to make it more communicable, he sacrifices a little bit on, on literal accuracy, and usually I think it's worth it few points I disagree with, but the message by Eugene Peterson is a very good devotional Bible. Uh, Paul says this. The first thing I did, talking to the Corinthians here, was I placed before you what was placed so emphatically before me. In the Greek here, it's literally I passed on to you what was passed on to me. And, and those are words that were used in, in, in Jewish circles to talk about the passing on of a sacred tradition. So here's, here's Paul's passing on the sacred tradition. And the first thing he says is that the Messiah, this is the tradition now, The Messiah died for our sins, exactly as Scripture tells us, and that he was buried, and that he was raised from the death on the third day. Again, exactly like Scripture says. Question. Where does Scripture exactly say that? That the Messiah was going to die for our sins, and uh, that he would then rise from uh, the the dead. Uh, You might think of Isaiah 53. uh, That passage could, could be considered a candidate at least. Because here we have 800 years before Jesus comes around a very good description of Jesus as the suffering servant. And this is the servant that's going to bear the sin of Israel and therefore bear the sin of the world. And by the way, know that when I refer to Israel, Israel was meant to be a kind of microcosm of the world. Uh, God wanted Israel to reach the entire world. And so as Israel goes, the world goes. Israel stands in place for the world. And so— here, we, we, he said that, that the, the Messiah, in Isaiah 53, the Messiah would, would die for the sins of Israel, and therefore the, for the sins of the world, and that he'd be buried among the wealthy, which happened with the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Um, and then in the end, it talks about how he will bring life to to his descendants and, and, and to, to multitudes, with a hint at resurrection there. So possibly, Paul has in mind Isaiah 53. In fact, I'm quite sure that Isaiah 53 is included in what Paul means by, when he says that all Scripture says that the Messiah would die for our sins and rise from the dead. But there's a lot of scholars, including the ones that I tend to gravitate most towards, like N.T. Wright, uh, who argue that, that Paul's reference is, is, is broader than that. He's not referring to one or two particular passages. He's rather referring to the basic story of the whole Bible, the storyline of the entire Bible, uh, that all Scripture and one way or another points to Jesus Christ. So just lock that in. It's all about Jesus, and more particularly about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Second passage I want to read is longer. This is also from the Message Translation. It's Luke 24. And here we find that um, there's these two disciples traveling on the road to Emmaus. And um, uh, this is on the first Easter morning, uh, the Women first and then the disciples after them have checked out the tomb and found that it's empty. But they're confused as to why it's empty. They think that maybe someone stole the body. And so these disciples are talking about this as they're walking down the road. Suddenly a stranger joins them. And a stranger happens to be Jesus. And there's something about Jesus' resurrected body that is such that what what, what you see or what you recognize depends a little bit on the state of your heart. Because these guys don't recognize him even though he's walking right, right alongside of him, And, and Jesus says, uh, hey, so what, what are you guys talking about? And they share with him, like, the, you know, we thought this guy was going to be the Messiah, and now the tomb's empty, we don't know what's going on. And then Jesus says this. So thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophet said? Don't you see that these things had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer, and only then enter into his glory? And then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. They came to the edge of the village where they were headed, uh, and Jesus acted as if he was going to go on, but they pressed him. Stay and have supper with us. It's nearly evening. The day is done. So Jesus went in with them, and here's what happened. He sat down at the table with them. And taking the bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Where have you heard those kind of words before? That's right, the Last Supper. And as soon as Jesus does that, it says that at that moment, open-eyed, wide-eyed, they recognized him. But then, much to their chagrin, he suddenly disappeared. <laughs> oh, you're Jesus. Boop, there it goes. A revelation happened there. So back and forth they talked. And they said, didn't we feel on fire as he conversed with us on the road as he opened up Scripture to us? So there's a way of reading scripture that can catch fire inside of you. And that's what Jesus was revealing to them. And then several verses later, uh, he, he, they're now back in, in, in uh, uh, Jerusalem, he, he, he shows up with the disciples and he says, Everything I told you while I was with you comes down to this. All the things written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms has to be fulfilled. And he went on to open their understanding of the word of God, showing them how to read their Bibles this way. And he said, You can see now how it is written that the Messiah suffers. He rises from the dead on the third day, and then a total life change for the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in his name to all the nations, starting from here in Jerusalem. Notice here, I mean, the right way to read the Bible, says Jesus, is that it all leads up to him and in particular to his self-sacrificial death on the cross. That, that, that event that reveals God like no other event does. It's a perfect definitive revelation of who God, who, who God is, what his character is like. Everything points in that way. And so if we're going to the Bible for any other purpose or any other reason, uh, well, you might find some interesting information, but you're not reading the Bible the way that God inspired the Bible to be read. They're all supposed to point to Jesus. But notice that to see how it all points to Jesus, Jesus has to open their eyes. There's a supernatural element to this. And as he opens up their eyes and they can see something they couldn't see before, they have a fire burning in their heart. Because now they see what it's all about. Jesus has to open up their eyes so they see you can read the Bible in a way that sets fire to them so they can see how it all leads and points to the, the sacrificial death of Jesus that's confirmed with the resurrection. There's, you have to have your eyes open supernaturally by the Spirit of Jesus to see how, to find the life that is in Scriptures. That's why the Pharisees and Sadducees couldn't find that life, Jesus says, because the love of God's not in your heart. There has to be an openness there, a seeking there, a questing there, and then the coin drops in the slot, the scales fall from the eyes, and now you can see something you couldn't see before. If you're just doing exegesis, if you're just reading the Bible the way you read the newspaper or read any other book, if you're reading it in a natural way, you're not going to find life in it. You're not going to see how it all points to Jesus. You're not going to have your heart set on fire by reading it. That takes a work of God. And so we have to know that when we go to Scripture— And read it for devotional purposes, which I hope we all start doing now and start feasting on that. There needs to be an openness to God to say, God, speak to me. Help me to see what you want me to see and hear what you want me to hear in these sacred words that you have breathed for us. You go beyond exegesis, which is simply interpreting the words that are in front of you, and you have a new kind of seeing, a unique way of reading the Bible. Now, there's a lot of conservative folks who say this, uh, that a verse can never mean now what it couldn't have meant back then. They insist that the, the only—there's only one accurate meaning to any passage of the Bible, and that's the meaning that the original author intended that verse to have. Anything else is nonsense. So uh, you have to stick to the original wording, the authorial intent. Uh, Here's—there's here, several problems with this. For one thing, if you're just sticking with the authorial intent, you don't need any supernatural removing of scales from your eyes. You don't need to have your eyes opened by the Spirit. No, you just do research. There it is. This word means this, and that word means that. Done with it. But the fact that we do need our eyes open when we read the Bible says that shows us that that, that assumption that it can only have one meaning is false. Uh, secondly— The church has always understood that there's multiple meanings to passages uh, because the church has always believed that this is a God-breathed book. It's a co-authored book. There's human authors, but there's also a divine author. And because there's a divine author, that author can intend meanings that the human authors weren't even aware of. In fact, 1 Peter tells us this. That the prophets, they they wrote things that they themselves didn't understand. Uh, So God can have meanings that go beyond that. This is what in the church tradition has been called the census plenor, or the fullness of of the meaning of of Scripture. Um, And the church has always encouraged that. It was only in the 17th century when— kind of secular humanism became, started to come into vogue after the scientific revolution and, 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 and uh, the enlightenment. And, and there were secular scholars who began to argue that this idea that the Bible is divinely inspired is a bunch of nonsense. And that if you want to be academically respectable, then you read the Bible the same way you would read any other book. Because in their view, the Bible is just like any other book. And so they were the ones who came up with this, this, this uh, rule that A verse can never mean now, but it couldn't amend back then. They were the ones who came up with the rule that the whole purpose of Bible study and Bible reading is just to get to the original intention of the author. Uh, And so it's just a little bit ironic that now it's conservative Christians who are championing the secular humanist way of reading the Bible. Uh, I and a number of other folks are saying we need to get back to the church tradition, which, which allowed for an openness to the Spirit, bringing new meanings to passages, and applying it in new ways to our life. A third problem with with that assumption, that a verse can only have one meaning, is that if you look at the way the New Testament authors, the way that they read the Old Testament, they did not stick to the original intention of the author. Uh, They were open to the Spirit, showing them things that they ordinarily couldn't see, and that's how they found Jesus all over the place in the Old Testament— I'll give you two illustrations of this. And, and these illustrations, by the way, uh, are uh, going to be useful not just as illustrations of how the New Testament authors uh, treat the Old Testament, but I'm laying a foundation here to answer the question that I'll end with, and that is uh, the big picture question. How does Jesus fulfill the storyline of the Bible? And it has to do with exile. So we'll get there. So uh, two, two, two examples of this. The first one is Matthew chapter 2. Here uh, is um, this is where uh, the family of Jesus were warned by God in the dream that, that Herod was going to come over to Bethlehem where they were located and slaughter all of the uh, male children under the age of two. Because he heard that a king was born in Bethlehem and he doesn't like any competitors, and so he went in there and slaughtered any boy he could find under the age of two, which probably would have been about 10 to 15 boys given the size of Bethlehem at that time. Uh, Some people think that, you know, I've heard this argument, well, if Herod had slaughtered all these children, then it would have been her— some secular historians should have picked up on it. And they use that to argue against the Bible. But see, first of all, Bethlehem's way out there in podunk Noville. If you're in in Rome, they're at the outer rim of the Roman Empire. No one cares about them. And for a a, a king to ruthlessly slaughter 10 to 15 babies, that doesn't make the news (laughs) Uh, back in those days, sadly enough. Uh, It's about 10 to 15 boys, but it's tragic. And uh, uh, in light of that, here's what Matthew says. So so Jesus flees to Egypt. And Matthew then goes, This, this fleeing into Egypt, was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, some people think that when the Bible says uh, this was done to fulfill that which was written, they think that that which was written must have predicted this event to fulfill it. Fulfilling a prophecy means it was predicted. Most of the time, it does not mean that, however. Fulfill, it means to fill out the meaning to the full. Uh, this, is, this event illustrates par excellence, what was talked about in the Old Testament. And so people who think that it means a prediction, they can get themselves in a, a theological sort of conundrum because they wonder, how could, if, if, if there's free agents, if Herod is a free agent, how could this have been predicted 800 years ahead of time? But if you look closely at what's going on here, you'll see that that is an unnecessary dilemma that people get themselves into. Uh, he, the, the original passage says this. Hosea chapter 11. He's quoting 11.1 uh, yeah, 1 in Hosea. And here the Lord says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I have called my son. And the more I called them, He's talking about Israel here, the nation of Israel. The more I called them, the more they went from me. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals, these false gods, and offering incense to idols. So see here that Hosea isn't predicting anything. He's certainly not talking about the future Jesus. He's not, let alone that Jesus has to go into Egypt to fulfill this prophecy. Um, Hosea's talking about the nation of Israel. And he's saying, he calls the nation of Israel my son, and I called them out of Egypt. Uh, in fact, in Hosea, it's a warning. Because he's saying, I've called you out of Egypt. I've called you into freedom. And yet you keep on going back into bondage. And and that's going to result in you going back into exile. The terms of the covenant, the first covenant, was that if you'll walk— the Lord said, if you'll walk in my ways, keep covenant with me, well then uh, you'll inherit this land and, and, and you'll be free and you won't be under anyone's rule. I'll, I'll protect you. But if you break covenant with me, then that sin will— Get you off the land, and you'll be in exile. Or even if you stay on the land, you'll be in exile because you won't be ruling yourself. You'll be under some pagan authority. And time and time again, and this is a refrain that you find throughout the story of God, uh, this exile theme comes up again and again and again. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, because Israel could not walk faithfully with God. It, they kept on falling back into it. So this is a passage of warning here. Now, if, if Matthew had felt like he had to stick to the original meaning— then that's all he would have got. It would have nothing to do with Jesus. But clearly when Matthew's reading his Bible, because he knows Jesus and he knows that Jesus fulfills everything and he knows that Jesus is the Lord embodied and the one who inspired this story, he reads the Bible looking for Jesus and open to the Holy Spirit, showing him Jesus. And so here he sees this parallel. It comes on the word son. Yeah, Israel was called uh, uh, God's son, God referred to him as, as son, but here we have the son, the son of God. And and in coming out of Egypt, Matthew sees this, this, this parallel here uh, that, uh, you know, Jesus is fulfilling this deliverance here. Uh, the, yes, God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt, uh, but they, their character didn't change, so they kept on falling back into it. But here is the one who's going to come out of Egypt. And he's saying Jesus embodies all that God hoped Israel would be. Because when Jesus is going to come out of Egypt, it's once and for all. There's no going back. Uh, whom the Son sets free is freed indeed. And, 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 and you're transformed because of that. And so he draws this parallel. Jesus is the embodiment of all God hoped Israel would be. And now through, through Jesus, as people get aligned with him, now the church will be all that God had hoped Israel would, would be. Or at least that's, that, that, that's our calling. But Matthew would have, not, would have seen none of this if he stuck to the original meaning, the authorial intent. This is confirmed by the next illustration, two verses later, where we read this. And here's the part that really drove Mary crazy. Crazy. So you're going to have to kind of lean in on this one, okay? But I think it's cool. <laughs> Last night she was like, I, I know you're excited about something, but I couldn't figure out what it was about. <laughs> Just, Matthew says, then was fulfilled... What had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah? A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they are no more. What is going on with this? Okay, let's do a little exegesis, just a little study. Uh, who, Who is this, Rachel? Well, Rachel is this lady who was married to Jacob, uh, one of the fathers of Israel. And uh, Rachel was the wife that he loved the most. uh, And um, she gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin and died in the process of giving birth to Benjamin. And she was buried in Bethlehem. Um, This passage, I should tell you, is this is happening as as a result of Herod having gone into Bethlehem and slaughtering these children. And that's why uh, Matthew now quotes Jeremiah thirty-one verse fifteen about Rachel weeping. So Rachel it was considered the matriarch of Israel. All of Israel was her descendants. And when Jeremiah is writing this, um, the Jews are in the process of being deported to Babylon. They're 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 because they've fallen again in the covenant over and over again, and so now the blessings have been lifted uh, and they're being taken off the land. So they're being deported. And Jeremiah then. He's talking figuratively here. He's like, the mother of Israel is weeping for her children, wailing, and is inconsolable because they're being exiled from the blessings of God and from the land that God gave them. And if Matthew had been just interested in exegesis, that's all he would have gotten out of this. But Matthew reads the Bible looking for Jesus, knowing that somehow it all comes to fulfillment in Jesus. And so he sees something very different here he sees in the wailing of these mothers in Bethlehem, right where Rachel was, was buried, uh, well, Rachel is still weeping. The mother of Israel is still weeping. You can hear it in the cries of these mothers over their lost children. And what he's saying is that the, the wailing of these mothers, uh, it fulfills the kind of wailing that we Jews have been having throughout our history, being thrown into exile. She's w- w- weeping, Oh, and it's heard in Ramah because Ramah was this little town just north of Jerusalem. And that was where the Babylonians would take the Jews and, and, and hold them there until they would caravan them all the way over to Babylon. So Ramah was the place where most of these Jews were saying, seeing Jerusalem for the last time. This is where you said your, your last goodbyes. It was a very, very sad place. A refuge camp, detained, a detainee camp. And so a voice from Ramo is heard, Rachel weeping for her children. And that, that weeping in the Old Testament comes to fulfillment as these mothers are wailing here. But it's done in the same context where, G, where Matthew has just presented Jesus as the one who comes out of Egypt, the one who's going to deliver Israel from its bondage. And so this longing, this wailing is, is, uh, has a dimension of, of people saying, how long before we're delivered from this exile? And Matthew is saying, your salvation draws nigh. Uh, these children were slaughtered. In the context where Jesus is coming, going to come out of Egypt and, and, and fulfill all that was written. So these authors, when they, when they read the Old Testament, they do it intentionally looking for Jesus. Uh, scholarly, if you're looking at it, only the original verse is what matters, you'd say that that's nonsense. But I have reasons, if the New Testament did it, I have reason to believe it's not nonsense. It's the right way to, to read the Bible. Um, at least when you're reading it devotionally. And so we all need to have times where we study the Bible, look into it, get the background, all that kind of stuff. I try to provide that in my messages. But there's got to be a time where you just— and I'm, so I'm preaching on myself here— uh, where I read the Bible, and not just because I want to teach it to somebody else, but where I let it teach me. Karl Barth, one of my favorite theologians, he said that uh, when we read the Bible as the Word of God— not studying it as just an ancient document— but when we read the Bible as the Word of God— um, uh, we don't interrogate it. We allow the Word to interrogate us. You sit under it, not over it. And so there needs to be times where we just prayerfully and meditatively take the Scripture and, and, and think about it and, and ask God to open our eyes to see stuff maybe we haven't seen before. Let God personalize it to you. Uh, let God reveal new things to you. I, I have a little testimony on this. Uh, I'll share more about this next week, but— you know, when I was working on the book, Crucifix of the Warrior God, the reason that book came about was I was wrestling with this problem of, of, problem of, of how, you know, if all, if all scripture points to God, how does a portrait of God saying, show no mercy, slaughter everything that breathes, men, women, chi- children, and even the animals, how does that point to Jesus Christ and more specifically to his suffering and death? <laughs> it seems to be totally a different character than what you find revealed about God on the cross. And I sat in this conundrum for a number of months, praying as I read scripture. Lord, open my eyes. There must be a way to see this that I'm not seeing. And and, and it was like I've described it before. Is is like reading one of those magic eye books, uh, where you know these are the books where you you look at a page and it looks like just random wallpaper patterns or whatever, whatever. But if you look at it the right way. Uh, you relax your eye. Don't look at it, look through it. You know, they give these kind of tips. Well, then you, you see a, like a three-dimensional object or animal or whatever picture coming out of these random patterns. It's a new way of seeing it. Uh, that's kind of what happened with me as I'm praying about this. Uh, I, it was like a, like a magic eye book. I, I see the cross in the midst of these really violent portraits of God. I'll share more about that next week. But uh, that's the kind of thing that can happen when we're sitting under the word, not over the word the uh, there's a distinction I want to make here that's important and that's this as we're reading the Word uh, for devotional purposes uh, it's one thing for God to give you a message about you or about your family or either guidance or or you know convict something or could, that's one thing receive that that's and god the Holy Spirit can be really creative and the messages he brings out of scripture that apply to you if you feel you have an insight that should be shared with others. Like here's 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 a way of looking at this passage, or in my case, here's a way of looking at these violent portraits of God. That needs to be subjected to communal discernment, and the Bible tells us that that no no interpretation of the Bible should be of a private interpretation. Um, and that's what I, that's why I wrote the books is like put it out there. Like what do you think? What do you think? And the verdict's still out on that one. So, uh, but it, it, it should be subject to to uh, others discernment. Okay. So be free. And let the Holy Spirit. Use the Bible as a creative way to talk to you individually and, 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 and transform you and deepen your relationship with God. So then the second question I can answer quite quickly, and that is how does Jesus actually fulfill the story, the inspired story of God, uh, the story, the, the whole Old Testament? Uh, as we've already seen, just looking at the way the New Testament authors handle the Old Testament, there's not one way of doing that. In fact, I'll share more about this next week, but there's a, there's a number of different ways of, of that— You find Jesus throughout all of Scripture. But there's one way that is, I think, more foundational to the rest because it actually affects the storyline of the Bible. How does the story culminate in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection? Um, And it's what I think Paul and Luke and John have most in mind when they talk about the Bible pointing towards Jesus. Uh, The the book that I think summarizes this storyline fulfillment the best is N.T. Wright's book, uh, The Day the Revolution Began. And I know I'm quoting too many books in this message, uh, but Mary will forgive me for that. Uh, it, it's, I, I, I didn't want to take it out. Because I know some folks here would want to, like, I want to go deeper with it. Read a, Anything by N.T. Wright is worth reading. It's good. But this book brings it all together in, 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 in a great way. Here's kind of what he says. Uh, the basic storyline of the Bible is, is this pattern of God giving us a space. He creates a space for us. A space where he's going to share his life with us. This comes to be called the kingdom of God, the domer of which he's king. So God offers it to us. But the storyline of the Bible over and over again shows us that human beings rebel. We, we, we sin. And sin is about rejecting God. And there comes a point where God gives us our way. And that's when we go into exile. We're exiled from the presence of God. We're exiled from the blessings of God. We're out on our own. But then God does everything God can do to deliver us, to, to, to bring us back to that space. But invariably, we sin again. And that's the story of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus. Uh, You see this right in the the first book of the Bible, in the third chapter. Adam and Eve are given the space, the Garden of Eden. It's where they are supposed to walk with God in the cool of the day, where they enjoy just communing with God. And that's the kind of thing we do when we're reading the Bible, devotionally. You commune with God. Uh, But they rebel against God. They eat of the forbidden tree. God's loving no trespassing sign, and the result is that they're banished from the garden. They're exiled. That's the first exile when they're kicked out of the garden. And the rest of the Bible really is a a story of God pursuing humans, trying to get us back there. Uh, So God raises up Israel as a way of of getting humanity back there. And Israel's going to stand in the place of all humanity, and and, and it was supposed to be the means by which God's going to reach all humanity. And that's being fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus represents all of Israel. So he raises up Israel and brings them out of Egypt, out of bondage, into this promised land. But as Hosea testifies, they kept on falling. They kept on sinning, going after false gods. And in the end, they, they're they taken off the land. They're exiled. First by the Assyrians, then by the, 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 the Babylonians. But running throughout this cycle of, of rebellion, exile, God attempting to restore, but rebellion again— Woven throughout that whole story are myriads of promises that God makes about, well, about the fact that it's not always going to be like this. So he promises that there will come a time when I am going to— uh, but I will fulfill your side of the covenant. You can't keep covenant with me, so I'll become one of you and I'll keep covenant for you. And, and, and I, I, will, uh, I will be your righteousness. I will be your Messiah. I'll be your deliverer. I, there's coming a time where I will put my law in your heart so that your character will want to do the things that are right to do. It, not just because there's a rule to, uh, that tells you you have to do them. Running throughout this whole story, we find promises about how God says, I'm going to finally deliver you out of Egypt once and for all. I'm going to finally bring you into a place of freedom. We're, uh, we'll, we'll, we, there'll be a time when we'll actually be related like husband and wife. We'll have this relationship that will be beautiful. Over and over again, all these problems, there'll be there's coming a time when uh, the Lord says he will free us from our bondage to idolatry and we'll, and we'll defeat the principalities and powers that hold us captive. Well, see, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. That's why Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, however many promises there are, and there's a lot of them, but they are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. They're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the deliverer. He's the hope for Messiah, the one who culminates this whole thing. He, he sends exile into exile. <laughs> he brings us out of Egypt once and for all. This is why Jesus inaugurated his first covenant on the Passover. Now follow this. This is really important. Uh, The Passover is. This took place the night before Israel was brought out of Egypt, and um, uh, you know Jesus could have chosen any holiday he wanted to, to inaugurate the new covenant, but he chooses the Passover, and that's when he says, "This is the Lord's supper." When he says, "This body or this bread represents my body, which is to be broken for you, and this cup represents my blood, which is going to be shed for you," he's talking about himself as food on the Passover. Because what he's saying here is that he is the Passover lamb. Now, If you go back to Exodus 12, you read about this story where um, the night before the Israelites were going to be delivered out of Egypt, uh, the Lord had them sacrifice an unblemished lamb and sacrifice it. And put the blood over the doorpost of their house. And that night, the destroyer, this destroying angel, would pass over all of Egypt and was going to kill the firstborn male of every family, throughout the land of Egypt, unless they had that blood on the doorpost. This is the Lord's way of saying that that salvation, freedom, comes at a great price. That's what that blood represents. Uh, And so Jesus is saying, I am that lamb that's going to be shed, that you can now leave Egypt. Uh, Israel is still in in exile, even though they're on this land. they're, They're lorded over by the Romans. They are exiled from the promises of God, the blessings of God. But Jesus is here saying that That uh, just like the Lord led you out of Egypt back then, well, I'm going to lead you and the world out of Egypt now. Uh, This is a new exodus. The new covenant is the covenant that is all about us now getting out of Egypt and staying out of Egypt, uh, having our characters transformed. In that first exodus, characters were transformed. That's why they kept on falling back into bondage. But now with the exodus that Jesus is leading— our characters are being refined and transformed because the spirit is inside of us. And as he promised in Jeremiah, he's, he's written his law in our hearts. And so we have him living in us, and we're living in him. Uh, this new reality that he's bringing about. And he's saying that in the f- first exodus, the, the destroyer, they were protected from the destroyer. But with the shedding of his blood, he's not only going to protect us, he's going to destroy the destroyer. It causes the kingdom of, uh, of darkness to, to implode in on itself. So to fulfill all these promises, God himself became a human being. That's who Jesus is. And, and uh, then this God, in the form of this man, this Messiah, went to the extreme of carrying our, bearing our sins and standing in our place in exile. Uh, that's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing our exile and the curse that goes with that, that we deserved. And in doing that, see, that, that expression of perfect self-sacrificial love, God crossing an infinite distance for a race of people that are guilty, that have just wanted to push him away, but that sacrifice on the cross reveals the perfection of God's love, and that's what breaks apart the kingdom of darkness. Lies can't stand up to truth, and hatred can't stand up to love, and this perfect explosion of love topples the kingdom of darkness, sets creation free. That is our exodus, and that is the climax of this whole story of God. Now we're heading towards the promised land. And now we are doing what uh, we're, we're, we're doing what God called ancient Israel to do, and that is to reach the world with this good news, that there's a promised land. You don't need to be living in Egypt anymore. You can be set free. And we're headed in this direction, towards this new heaven and a new earth, where God's will will finally be done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus fulfills the storyline of scripture. Now, knowing that now, you can find Jesus in all sorts of other ways. Uh, but this is, I think, the, the most, most foundational way. I'll end with just with this. I, I am going to make a covenant with you that I am going to regularly read this Bible without having you in mind. Because <laughs> uh, I need to. I, I need to eat. Uh, this is our food. I Just to sit under it, not sit over it. I, like you, if, if this is your spiritual body, I'm not going to tell you how much or anything like that, but we just take this to the Lord and— uh, and see what he requires of you. Would what what, be 15 minutes a day, perhaps, as a start? You'd start with something that you can do. You know, okay, I, I committed two hours a day I'm going to spend on the word. No, you won't, you'll probably won't keep that up. Not if you've not been doing that for a while. Uh, start with something manageable. God will lead you. But let's be a people of the word. And chew on this. And meditate on it. and. Be open to the Spirit, revealing new and exciting things for us. I I will complete this uh, message on interpreting the Bible next week. I know this thing just goes on and on and on, but this is so foundational and so important. So I I, I just, I'm so glad that I got this revelation this week, even though it's convicting the daylights out of me. Uh, But I feel excited to embark on this endeavor. I hope you are too. I'll close with prayer. Lord, forgive me for being remiss on... uh, sitting under your word and remiss on teaching your word Uh, I thank you for your forgiveness and for new starts I pray Lord that that by the power of your spirit you open our eyes first of all convict us to be sitting under this word and then open our eyes uh, to fall more and more in love with you as we read your word as we find ourselves in the story inspired story of God I pray, Lord, especially for those who have maybe had the Bible weaponized against them and uh, have suffered spiritual abuse. And so they've been trained to just notice all of the ugly parts of the Bible and they, they maybe fear it, and that's why they stay away from it. Lord, will you give us a new heart? Heal those wounds. Give us fresh eyes, fresh ears to hear, to see what you want to say to us through your word. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said amen. Uh, we have prayer rooms available if you need prayer. Uh, I encourage you to check out uh, MuseCast on Tuesdays uh, where they go deeper with the word. And of course, take advantage of our gathering areas, uh, our gathering groups. Uh, the area is on Zoom. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, dialogue with other people. This, this stay connected as possible as we are going through this exile out of normal. We'll get there. Where it's coming, but hold fast for a little bit. God bless you guys. Love you. See you next week.